Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Nate Fisher. And this is Timeline Tapes. It's the podcast made by the YouTube channel Timeline. Our channel has hundreds of great series and documentaries, but we know that sometimes it can take a lot of time to binge an entire series. So we thought we'd make it easier for everyone to enjoy them by turning some of our favorites into podcasts. This week, we bring you another episode from our series Battles Won and Lost, which looks into the operations that shaped the outcome of the greatest conflict in history, World War II. The host of the show is Peter McCallum, but I'll be popping up along the way to introduce other guests and guide you through. We're kicking off this episode in the Pacific Ocean with the famous Battle of Midway in 1942. Our leading voices on this one will be historian and author Gregory Blake and Rear Admiral James Goldrick from the Royal Australian Navy. The naval revolution that had been hinted at in the Coral Sea would be fully realized at Midway a battle for which Japan gathered massive naval strength. The Japanese objective at Midway was to destroy the US Navy. And to do this, they decided to move on Midway Island. Midway Island was an island on the Hawaii defense perimeter. And the plan was to entice the US Navy into a trap and destroy it, which would, of course, if that had occurred, it would have given the Japanese free reign over the west coast of the USA, and they would have also had the opportunity to attack Hawaii. American patrols sighted Japanese warships and troop transports several hundred miles out at sea, heading for this island of Midway. He decided that this was the place to make a stand, and committed all available ships to a bold attack. The Japanese Navy was, as had been proven early in the 20th century, when she destroyed the Imperial Russian fleet, a match for anyone. But repeatedly, in the story of battles won and lost in the Second World War, we find the difference between victory and defeat rests with the difference between concentration and dispersal. The problem with the Japanese was that they had scattered their fleet over a very wide area. It was organised into component parts, none of which could support each other. So, in effect, as a total number, the Japanese outnumbered the Americans, but when it came to a face-to-face -face battle, they didn't. The American fleet went into the battle with another advantage, because the Coral Sea encounter ruled both Zuikaku and Shokaku out of the Midway engagement. 
Yorktown, on the other hand, which was estimated to require three months for repair, was swarmed over by 1,400 workers, and they had the job done in two days. She was in the line of battle. The Japanese had a complicated plan. The second carrier strike force would go north to the Aleutians. Midway, near enough midway between Hawaii and Japan, would be approached across a broad front of ocean. A significant force would break off to possibly support action in the Aleutians. It was labeled the Aleutians Screening Force. The fleet proper would divide. The invasion force under Admiral Kondo would hold back. The main body under Yamamoto would also wait, allowing Nagumo to press the attack with the first carrier strike force built around the four carriers, Akagi, Kaga, Soryu, and Hiryu. To the south of the main force was the close support force under Admiral Kurita. In the event, Admirals Kurita, Yamamoto, and Kondo would play no part in this most decisive battle. The Americans, by contrast, were sailing to the battle zone in a compact formation. Rear Admiral Jack Fletcher, Task Force 17, again flying his flag from Yorktown, and Rear Admiral Raymond Spruance in Task Force 16 with the carriers Enterprise and Hornet, giving the Americans three carriers to the Japanese four. But the Americans had another advantage. They knew exactly what to expect. Their cryptoanalysts had cracked the Japanese naval code. They could read Japanese orders, they knew Japanese plans, they knew where the Japanese would be and in what strength. It was absolutely decisive. A submarine patrol was on station at Midway, and aircraft based there could extend surveillance to about 500 kilometers from the island. The stage was set. Around 4.30 in the morning of June 4th, Nagumo, steaming about 400 kilometers northwest of the island, initiated the action by committing about half of his total air arm to an attack on Midway. The battle continued in bursts over the next two days. The course of the Battle of Midway was first influenced by Admiral Nagumo's decision when his aircraft returned to their ships and his pilots reported a failure to completely destroy the installations and aircraft on Midway. Nagumo ordered them to be rearmed with bombs rather than torpedoes for a second attack on the island. At 5.45, after a Catalina had sighted the Japanese task force, the American carriers turned towards the enemy that they would engage but never see. With carrier warfare, it was quite clear the person who struck first was going to win. And Japanese lost that little advantage and the Americans were able to conduct an extraordinary successful strike. Had the Japanese found the Americans first and focused on conducting a mass strike against the Americans, it could have gone the other way. Enterprise and Hornet launched their first attacks on the Japanese ships shortly after six. They launched 29 torpedo bombers, of which they lost 24. These were outdated Devastator aircraft, and after Midway, they were withdrawn from service. 
They had failed to record a single hit on a Japanese ship, but they had, most importantly, disorganized the enemy fleet and forced its air cover down to sea level. Above them, squadrons from Enterprise and Yorktown went in. It was mid-morning, and these were the much more effective, dauntless aircraft, responsible for sinking more Japanese vessels than any other weapon. The battle would continue, but its outcome was decided in five minutes. Nagumo gave the order to launch at 10.20, but at 10.25, Lieutenant Commander Wade McCluskey of the USS Enterprises Air Group led his 37 dauntless dive bombers in from an altitude of 14,000 feet in a 70-degree dive at 280 knots. The carrier Akagi was hit first. Then Kaga. last Soryu as dive bombers from Yorktown joined the assault. Aircraft from the remaining Japanese carrier meanwhile hit Yorktown, but the losses in aircraft were great. Japanese planes were shot down by the score. One flew slap into this. These losses meant that Hiryu, though she remained active, was weakly protected and, in the last carrier action of June 4th, came under attack from the dauntless dive bombers, so that as the sun set, all four Japanese carriers were sinking. Yorktown, too, was in a bad state and had to be abandoned. During the night of the 4th of June, Japan's four carriers were either sunk or scuttled. The main Japanese force had by now sailed to within range of the Midway-based B-17, and these attacked as, during the 6th, the American fleet searched the seas. Uh, in the first day, we uh, hit about 30 ships of all types, battleships, cruisers, storage, and transports. Second day, we hit the carriers. Uh, Any luck with them? Oh, yes. Knocked them right in there. The Yorktown was taken in tow but both the carrier and the destroyer Haman that had come to her aid were sunk by torpedoes from a Japanese submarine. News of the engagement was passed to Prime Minister Tojo in Tokyo in suitably formal courtly style. The Navy, he was told by General Moritaki Tanabe, has made a great mistake. Midway was a decisive naval battle whose outcome was decided not by ships, but by almost 500 aircraft. Midway has always been a candidate for turning point. Was the outcome of the war in the Pacific decided in those two days of naval action? What happened placed the American and Japanese fleets on an approximately equal footing. What happened next most influenced the course of the war. Between Midway and 1944, Japan built six new fleet carriers. The United States built 14. America is building freighters by day and night. Red Hot Rivets and Red Hot Rivet Catchers are on the job. They're turning out the ships, and the ships are delivering the goods. The production capacity was central to what happened in the rest of the war of the Pacific. The American industrial machine was gearing up in 1942 and 
its products really started to come out in mass numbers in 1943. If Midway was a victory at sea, it was made decisive by the shipyards and factories that could make good the losses in a way that Japan simply could not match. The Japanese, on the other hand, had no similar mass building program, nor the ability to mobilize such large numbers of educated people. And I think that's a very important point. It's not just the extraordinary American industrial output that gave you so many aircraft carriers, so many aircraft, so many battleships, and so many other ships. It was this extraordinary ability to take an educated population and train them for people who'd never seen the sea to go out and be effective sailors, officers at all levels. Next, we're exploring Case Blue in 1942, the continuation of Operation Barbarossa, which took place in southern Russia. We hear from historian Oleg Beda and Dr. Peter Stanley from the Australian Center for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society. Hitler's position after a disastrous winter on the Russian front placed him in a dilemma. Either he must push on into the Caucasus and dangerously extend his front, or he must somehow contrive to do without the vital Caucasian oil field. When, with summer, the German assault on the Soviet Union was renewed, there were 51 German divisions across Europe and 167 on the Eastern Front. They were supported by 30 from various Axis partners and sympathizers. In a sense, German summer offensive of 1942 was like Barbarossa remastered. Yet again, the Germans were facing this enormous fields, a lot of resistance, they were taking a lot of prisoners of war. So the idea behind it was that now the Soviet Union will collapse. Now the Russian resistance will die down, which happened and not happened at the same time. German battle plans were designated full or case and identified by color. Case Blue, the plan for the summer offensive of 1942, was detailed as Directive 41 and issued in April. The major role was to be shouldered by von Bock's Army Group South. The prize would be the Caucasus, and while the jewel in that particular crown was the oil fields, from the perspective of wide strategy, an advance into the Caucasus also meant advancing the front past Moscow. The Nazis would have a base from which to launch a flanking attack on Moscow. With one master stroke, the Russian armies to the south would be practically cut off from Caucasus oil. In a preliminary action, von Manstein's 11th Army attacked in the Crimea on May 8th. Four days later, completely surprising the Germans, the Russians launched their own offensive. Timoshenko, commanding the Southwest Theater, exploiting the salient that had been created south of Kharkov. Germany had plans to nip out the salient. The Russians beat them to it by six days. So Operation Fridericus was brought forward. In three days, the Russians had penetrated more than 40 kilometers, but they were overcautious in committing their armor. When von Kleist attacked with 15 divisions and von Paulus brought the 6th Army in on the flank, Stalin refused to vary the offensive order. 
when Army Group Kleist and the 6th Army on the 22nd trapped the Soviet forces in the pocket they had tried to exploit, only 22,000 Soviet troops managed to escape the encirclement. The failed offensive cost the Soviet Union almost a quarter of a million men taken prisoner. And now, the main German offensive could begin. The six armies of Army Group B moved at the end of June. By the 6th of July, they had crossed the Don. The next day, the Russians evacuated Voronezh. Von Kleist's first Panzer Army would turn south, crossing the Don close to where it entered the Sea of Azov, forcing Malinovsky's south front back and reaching the oil fields at Makop on August 9th. True, they did capture a few, but this was the scene when they got there. The Russians, carrying out their scorched earth policy with complete thoroughness, had themselves fired the wells and the storage tanks. On the following day, August 10th, von Paulus crossed the Don and reached the outskirts of Stalingrad. The advance into the Caucasus continued, and on August 23rd, the swastika was hoisted on Europe's highest peak, Mount Elbrus, 5,642 meters. This is the high point of the German advance into Russia. But the deeper they go into Russia, the bigger the problem becomes. And the very same day, the day they raised the flag on Mount Elbrus, they also enter Stalingrad. So in a sense, the German success carries within it the seeds of its own destruction. The battle for the Caucasus and occupation of the vital oil fields had been won. But the outcome of the battle for Russia and for the living space in the East that Hitler had promised to the German people was very finely balanced. Moving on from the Soviet Union, we join Operation Longcloth in 1943, featuring the voice of author and historian Dr. Peter Peterson. The British have a tradition of leaders who bring to the art of war a sort of mystery, mysticism, charisma. Ord Charles Wingate was very much of that lineage. He had a background in guerrilla warfare. He fought a guerrilla campaign in Palestine before the war. He was a man who propounded his beliefs, advocated his beliefs with messianic zeal. He was argumentative and wouldn't take no for an answer. He was a very difficult subordinate. Wingate's idea advanced for its time and causing him to argue long and hard with his superiors was for a special force that could operate behind enemy lines. Deep penetration was the expression. And the very technical term was asymmetric warfare. The Japanese would then have to divert troops from the front line to deal with these issues in their rear. He prosaically called it having your hand in the enemy's bowels. That idea took hold, it was decided to give it a try, and the 77th Brigade was created. It was based on groups of British, Indian and Gurkha troops with commandos, signalers, Burmese guides and interpreters. They would go behind the Japanese lines as Wingate intended, and they were called Chindits because the Chindit was a mythical Burmese creature that guarded Buddhist temples. Here they are, for the first time in newsreels, the Chindits. 
a name from legend that's become flesh and blood, living guardians of Burma's safety. The first intention was to incorporate the deep penetration tactic into a larger campaign. But when that was cancelled, Wingate persuaded General Wavell in overall command to allow the Chindit operation to go ahead. That action became known as Operation Longcloth. It was first and foremost an attempt to prove Wingate's concept and the force numbered just 3,000. On February 13, 1943, the Chindits crossed the Chinwin River and entered Burma, modern Myanmar. Two days later, they engaged Japanese troops. The Japs had been outfought and outmaneuvered just where they thought that they were safely tucked away. Two columns marched south, but they were a deception. Five columns, the main campaign, marched east. Two making for the main north-south railway with sabotage in mind. On March 4th, one column succeeded in its aims, wrecking the railway in as many as 70 places. The Japanese quickly repaired the railway. The raid didn't cause any disruption to their plans or dispositions, and it didn't inflict many casualties. It also consumed a large slice of the air resources and other resources in the Burma theatre, where resources were very scarce. Wingate himself repeatedly changed plans and destinations, but communications were poor not least because the terrain was harsh and the columns were behind enemy lines. So column commanders were not always informed of Wingate's new intentions. The nature of the operation and terrain meant that the men were heavily burdened with supplies. The kit of a man who will live and fight for months cut off in the jungle is an all-important factor. General Wingate knew how vital it is to carry the things you need. It also meant that frequently the wounded had to be left, where possible, in the care of villagers. The resupply by air, a single RAF squadron of six aircraft was responsible, was adequate, but lack of a clear objective was becoming an issue. Wingate elected to cross the Irrawaddy, but here terrain was difficult and the Japanese were able to maneuver in a way that threatened to trap Wingate's command in an ever-contracting box. With his forward elements now operating at the extreme limit of the range of air supply, Wingate decided in late March to withdraw his force. Here, the decision to cross the Irrawaddy took an awful toll. The need to cross the river to return to India meant that the Japanese could concentrate their forces along its banks, and as soon as an attempted crossing was sighted, numbers could be concentrated to contest the crossing. The losses were catastrophic. Wingate was wrong in thinking that the Japanese would be panicked because of some issues in their rear areas. That was never going to happen. They were easily able to seal these chindit penetrations off. This forced the columns to fragment, and small groups of men continued to trickle back to their base until the end of April. 
3,000 had set out. 818 did not return. Killed, wounded, or taken prisoner. Of the 2,187 who did return, about 600 so weakened by sickness or their wounds would never return to active service. Operation Longcloth had then halved the effectiveness of the force that set out on its three-month campaign. A battle lost, but one from which Wingate drew many lessons. Wingate is convinced that these long-range penetrations by his chindits are the best way of taking the war to the Japanese, the best way of regaining Burma. In his mind, conventional operations are now subsidiary. And he was able to get the resources needed to mount a much larger raid in 1944. But Wingate would not play a significant role. In March, the plane on which he was travelling crashed and he was killed. He was 41 years old. We mourn his loss, but we know that his teaching will bear fruit in due course. These are the men of the long-range penetration group. Their fighting behind the enemy lines in Burma has made them a name throughout the world. That is the epitaph for Charles Ord Wingate. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes. We're joined by Wayne Reynolds from the University of Newcastle, Australia, as we travel to the 1944 Eastern Front for Operation Bagrazione. 
As summer warmed the Soviet soil in 1944, the entire Eastern Front moved. A dozen Soviet army groups from the Karelian Front in the north to the third Ukrainian front on the shores of the Black Sea were in some way involved in a great offensive that Stalin had named for a hero of the Napoleonic Wars, Operation Bagration. The offensive was, at its heart, the drive to expel German forces, which still stood in great numbers on Soviet soil. It was the drive on the Vistula and its climax coincided with the breakout from Normandy. The Germans were in big trouble in the West and they needed to shore up the Western Front. The problem was that exactly the same time, the Russians put in a huge offensive, 1.7 million men over the entire front. And they were in a position to do in 1944 what the Germans had done with Operation Barbarossa in 1941. In preliminaries, the 21st Army of the Leningrad Front began the attack. The Karelian Front joining the offensive 10 days later. On both fronts, the Finns, armed by the Germans and supported by one German division, were driven back. And then on June 22nd, the day after the Karelian Front had moved and the third anniversary of the German invasion of Russia, Operation Bagration opened. The Soviets had deployed 300 guns per kilometer on a 560 kilometer front from Smolensk through to Minsk in Belarusia. As always, Russian artillery has been right in the forefront of the picture. Gunners of the Northern Army smashed German efforts to delay the Soviet advance. The Soviet fronts began their surge towards four Axis army groups. Cherniakovsky's 3rd Belarusian moved on the 23rd. Rokossovsky's 1st Belarusian the next day. And they advanced tenaciously for 10 weeks. And it was that attack that broke through and was so effective in blitzkrieg-type tactics, which you'd seen developing since Stalingrad, worked very successfully in the counter-attack at Kursk in 1943. The Russians are pretty good at this by 1944. The 1st Baltic Front, General Bagramian, and the 3rd Belarusian Front, Cherniakovsky, opened the Vitensk-Orsha offensive, driving into Lithuania. While Soviet forces are annihilating Germans in one great town after another, their comrades have been driving on at the rate of 20 miles a day into Latvia, into Lithuania, closing rapidly on the very birthplace of Germany's incorrigible military cult, East Prussia. On the huge eastern front, tanks go forward in pursuit of other retreating Germans. By the 27th, Vitebsk had fallen and the 3rd Panzer Army was lost. German tanks and fortifications received very heavy punishment, and defences, which Hitler thought to be an almost impregnable barrier, were now overrun. 
Brokosovsky's first Belarusian front was swinging up towards Minsk. Chernyakovsky swinging down to meet him. Second Belarusian front, General Zakharov, crossed the river Dnieper, aiming directly for Minsk. These Russian newsreels also show the crossing of the Dnieper. This was carried out by bridge and boat under continuous fire. But it was carried out, as we all know. Third Belarusian front reached and crossed the river Berezina the next day. In two weeks, Operation Bagration had penetrated 160 kilometers on a 400-kilometer front. Army Group Center's 37 divisions were pulverized by 166 Soviet divisions supported by 2,700 tanks and 1,300 assault guns. Seven of Army Group Center's generals had been killed in the action. Second Belarusian Front continued its advance. This was the Mogilev Offensive, which forced opposing troops back on the Berezina, where they would be trapped. Rokossovsky's forces broke through the supposedly impassable Pripyat marshes, his engineers having crossed them with wooden causeways. By June 27th, he had encircled two German corps east of Bobryusk, which was liberated on June 29th. The Allies had landed at Normandy three weeks previously, but to contrast the scale of the operations, for the duration of the summer, German casualties in the east outstripped those in the west by four to one. Ninety percent of all Germans killed in combat died on the Eastern Front. More between July 1944 and May 45 than in the preceding five years. Well, I think the Germans simply didn't have the resources. They were massively uh, outgunned in every field, even in the air, in tanks, in mobile artillery, artillery, manpower. They just were being beaten down by vastly superior forces. And that had been coming in 41, 42, 43. By the time they got to 44, you're really dealing with an army in, in serious trouble. The Minsk offensive pressed on. 5th Panzer Division was rushed forward to plug approaches to the city. But on July the 3rd, the 2nd Guards Tank Corps of the Red Army broke into the city. By the end of July 4th, the city had fallen. 40,000 of its defenders encircled and Army Group Center destroyed. The advance continued with the successful results which we know. Not the least of these results have been more prisoners. Just one instance of the increasing drain on German manpower. By July the 11th, Germany had lost 28 divisions. More than 30 generals had been killed or captured, and the Red Army had advanced 650 kilometers. Rokossowski's forces reached the River Bug, the original Polish border. They reached the eastern banks of the Vistula on the 25th and turned to threaten Warsaw. At the end of this campaign, the Russians are right next to Warsaw. 
They're right next to Ploesti in Romania. They're about to take the last oil fields away from the Germans. And there, Stalin held, gathering his strength for the final devastating assault that would carry the Red Army into Berlin and see the Soviet flag hoisted on the ruins of the Reichstag. It's time for the Battle of the Skelt in the autumn of 1944, as the Allies try to clear a path to the port city of Antwerp. After the Normandy landings, the Allies poured more and more men and materiel ashore. And as they moved away from their beachhead, the lines of supply extended and the need for supply increased. Every conceivable kind of material requiring thousands of ships and landing craft to ensure steady progress against a determined enemy. It's certainly no picnic these days being in one of the army supply organizations. As the campaign moved into the second half of 1944, the situation became critical. The failure to take Dunkirk was a setback. The Belgian port of Antwerp, potentially vital, was in Allied hands by early September, and it was virtually undamaged. But the marine approaches to Antwerp were unique, and they posed a problem. The port sits at the mouth of the Scheldt. Ships entering must sail up the estuary, and the estuary was flanked along the channel by German defences, and guarded at its mouth by the island of Valkyrin. General von Zengen, recently sent to take over 15th Army, energetically built up the defences, determined to deny use of Antwerp to the Allies. This battle, of course, was a vital part of the struggle to free the approaches to Antwerp, and the importance of Antwerp as a supply port certainly needs no stressing. Canadian divisions faced the estuary and launched their assault in late October. The force arrived early in the morning and landed in the face of heavy opposition on a small beachhead which was under continuous fire from German batteries in land. The second division pressed across the peninsula and into South Beveland, taking Hulse on October 29th. They were moving to link up with other units that had come in from the sea. 4th Special Service Brigade, as it was then called, now 4th Commando, landed on Valkyrin on November 1st. Rather whimsically, their action was called Operation Infatuate. 47th and 48th Commandos landed on the northwest tip of the island, and an infantry brigade with commando elements on the southwest tip. The Canadians, having fought their way through Bevelond, crossed the slow channel on the 3rd. The island was an unpleasant place to fight. The RAF had breached local dikes and the ground was flooded. But by the 8th, von Zangen's defence had been defeated. And as soon as a channel had been cleared through the mines, Allied shipping began to use Antwerp. By the opening of the great port of Antwerp, with its miles of docks and its vast facilities for the landing of supplies, our minesweepers have magnificently rounded off the work of the armies in Holland. Supply, securing material for one's own army, 
or denying it to the enemy, grew more vital as war became more mechanized. The use of the great port of Antwerp was a significant gain for the Allied forces. As they prepared themselves for the advance across Europe, towards the Rhine and beyond. Its significance was not lost on German high command. The attempt to defend the approaches to Antwerp had failed. But the idea of launching a drive that could retake the port, or at least deny it to the Allies, was brought into German planning. Could enough material, enough men, be marshaled to make a surprise counter-thrust, almost mirroring the first great blitzkrieg that had dashed to the channel in 1940? And if such a counter-offensive could be launched, might it not alter the outcome of the war? The eyes of the German high command returned to that part of the front where they had so successfully attacked when the war first crashed into France, the Ardennes. For the final battle of the episode, it's the Battle of the Bulge, also in 1944, as the Germans succeed in staging a surprise attack. Our main voice for this one is Dr. Dean Peter Baker from the Australian Centre for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society, joined by Wayne Reynolds and First Lieutenant Joe Nathan from the US Air Force. The war in the West was, it seemed, moving steadily, predictably, to its climax. On the 8th of November, the day that Patton began his offensive in the Saar, the French First Army moved on the Belfort Gap. By the middle of the month, there were formations in motion all along the line. The American First and Ninth Armies to the north of Patton, elements of the US 7th entering Strasbourg on the 2nd, and the 6th entering the Maginot Line on the day that the first vessels entered and started to use the port of Antwerp. Operation Watch on the Line, as, as this operation was called from the German side, was the last major German offensive of World War II. They were being squeezed between the, the Russians who were advancing in the east and the British and American and other Allied forces who were coming at them from the west. And so Hitler had to do something. He couldn't just fight a, a rearguard action that would always just end in disaster. Properly labeled the Ardennes counteroffensive, history remembers it as the Battle of the Bulge. As we approached the Battle of the Bulge, the Germans were about to attack in a place that they had attacked in 1870, 1914, 1940, and now they're about to do it in 1944. And as in every other attack, they will be successful in achieving complete surprise. Where the Germans surged, the 145-kilometre front was held by four American divisions, with one inexperienced armoured division, the 9th, in support. Two of the four infantry divisions had been sent to the quiet Ardennes to recuperate, and a third, the 106th, had never been in action. Onto this force fell two panzer armies, which in hours had created an 80-kilometre salient, the Bulge. In 24 hours, the initiative changed hands, and the German army, which had put the word Blitzkrieg into all languages, unleashed its desperate offensive. 
A short bombardment had pushed Allied heads down before the armor came forward under cover of heavy fog, which neutralized Allied air superiority. It may not be like 1918, but it's certainly not like 1940. The Hun has won a success. How big remains to be seen. Progress in the north fell behind schedule, but 1st Panzer Corps made good ground and was dashing for the Meuse bridges. The 5th Panzer Army brushed aside the 106th, but slowed against the experienced 28th Division. It was late afternoon before Allied High Command realized that what was happening was an all-out offensive rather than a feint. The Allies were taken completely by surprise. They were overconfident. They were so busy planning how they would take Hitler's forces apart, it didn't seem to really occur to anybody that he was making a plan to take their forces apart. Our command was taken totally by surprise. So they reacted uh, in an extreme. Everything that could fly flew to bomb their supply train. And I can remember seeing the sky just filled with airplanes. It was really quite a sight. Allied confusion was increased, in part due to the discovery of 150 Germans who, dressed as Americans, had penetrated Allied lines under the command of Otto Skorzeny, the man who, in September 1943, had rescued Mussolini. As part of Operation Watch on the Rhine, Hitler came up with the idea of creating an infiltration force that would get through the Allied lines in order to capture the key bridges on the River Meuse. But really their real impact ironically came when the first unit was captured and it suddenly became known to the Americans that there were these Germans wandering around behind their lines dressed as Americans with American equipment and panic ensued. So suddenly everybody was suspicious of everybody else. On the 18th, Eisenhower halted the advance on the Rhine and gave priority to repelling the Ardennes offensive. The German onslaught slowed. Fuel was becoming a problem. By the 22nd, the 6th Panzer Army had stopped altogether. Units were losing contact with each other. Von Manteuffel's 5th Panzer Army, which had surrounded Bastogne, was pushing forward. But that is as far as the Germans got. The 3rd US Army under Patton now brought pressure from the south. And with the weather clearing, the overwhelming Allied air supremacy started to tell. Perhaps no general other than Patton in the western side anyway could have been quite as successful at turning his army to come to the rescue of those at Bastogne. Uh, he drove his forces hard, they got there quickly, and it was a very impressive example of the skill of generalship. But I think it's too easy to oversimplify and say that the battle was won because of Patton, that this was Patton's victory. There were many facets that, uh, in the end, resulted in the Germans being defeated.
The attack was blunted, the spearhead stopped. The Nazi columns contained and thrown back by men who had flung themselves into the breach. The Ardennes offensive cost each side about 80,000 casualties, losses from which the Allies could recover, but not the Axis. The Germans, yes, they were able to concentrate um, significant forces in that theater, but they couldn't sustain them. They couldn't replace the forces that they lost, and they just didn't have the supplies to keep their force going. Americans could always do that. They had that capability. The German offensive had been blocked and then reversed. The losses inflicted equaled those sustained, and with the counteroffensive, Axis forces were falling back all along the front. The bulge had held up the Allied push across the Rhine for six weeks, but it had only been held up. Crossing the Rhine was the last barrier before Eisenhower's armies poured into the Fatherland. Patton crossed the Rhine at Oppenheim. The next night, Montgomery crossed at Emmerich. The battle was won. German soil was underfoot, and the war in Europe that had started 68 months earlier was almost over. That's all for this episode of Timeline Tapes. We continue with brand new Battles Won and Lost in our next episode. But as always, if you just can't wait for some more history docs, head over to our YouTube channel. If you want to contact Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you like this episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you want to, give a five-star rating and write a review as well. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.